This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today we'll be talking about all things soul with Emily J. Lordy, author of The Meaning of Soul, Black Music and Resilience Since the 1960s from Duke University Press. Soul is one of those concepts that is often evoked, but rarely satisfactorily defined. In her book, Lordy takes on the challenge of explaining soul through a book that zooms in and out between sweeping ideas about suffering and resilience in Black culture and fine-grained close readings of individual performances by soul musicians. She focuses on artists that are some of the most recognizable Black singers in the United States, such as Aretha Franklin, Nina Simone, and James Brown but spends a lot of time with more obscure figures as well, including Donny Hathaway and Minnie Ripperton. She ends the book with a powerful contemplation of how these ideas, born in the political and social tumult of the late 1960s, still resonate with some of today's most popular women singers. Thank you so much for joining me today, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. So you um, are in the English department at Vanderbilt University, but this is very much a book about music. How did you come to this topic? Well, I started thinking about music and literature in conjunction with one another as a graduate student, actually. Um, I studied at Columbia University, where I was in the English department, but I was sort of under the tutelage of several scholars, including Robert G. O'Mealy, Vera Jasmine Griffin, Brent Hayes Edwards, uh, Robin Kelly came through, and various people came through who were who were really thinking about music. You know, whether from a, a historian's vantage point, as was the case with Kelly, or from a kind of literary critical perspective, um, as was the case with the other scholars that I mentioned. And so it was just this like wonderful place and time in which to engage in the kind of interdisciplinary study of both African American musical forms as well as their kind of literary counterparts. And so that became um, that kind of uh, interdisciplinary engagement provided the basis for my dissertation, which became my first book, which was a comparative analysis of Black women singers and the African-American writers who invoke them. So that particular book, uh, Black Resonance, which came out in 2013, um, that paired people like Richard Wright and Bessie Smith, uh, the writer Gail Jones and Billie Holiday. And then the last chapter um, looked at Aretha Franklin and Nikki Giovanni. And it was in studying uh, those, those particular artists in conjunction with each other and also um, in relationship to the wider network of Black arts and Black power artists and activists of the late 60s and, and 70s. I was trying to write both Giovanni and Franklin into a narrative alongside those political, uh, social and cultural actors. It was in doing that work that I realized that that could be its own book, you know, that looking at um, soul artists like Franklin and and the writers who I think tell us as much as anybody um, about what they were doing, how they sounded and the kind of broader cultural import of their musical advances. Um, that was kind of the, the birthplace or the origin of what became the soul book, which was actually going to be an interdisciplinary study like the first one. I was going to think about um, you know, what, what soul literature might be. Um, but as I started delving into the music, I kind of realized that there was so much just to say about that. Um, and frankly, that it was just more manageable you know, to, to look at the musicians kind of in their own right. Um, so that's what I really kind of ended up doing. And the last thing that I'll say about it 
is I was motivated to do it not only because I was personally invested, you know, in this music and in this kind of cultural political moment, but because there was really a dearth of scholarship on artists, even like Aretha Franklin, which might seem surprising, but when I was starting out, and I think this is still the case, you know, researching Franklin, this would have been, uh, you know, around 2008, 2009, I was really surprised to find how little um, serious scholarly attention her music had had really gotten at that point. And so, you know, I, I sought to fill a gap with this book, um, you know, that others have since, you know, in, in the decade or so since, others have, have of course, um, you know, come in to help fill as well. Um, but that was another kind of impetus for this project. So, of course, that brings up the question and in, in the answer that you gave here about how you came to the book, but also, you know, you, you talk about this book is about, and according to the titles, about the meaning of soul. So why don't we start there? What is the meaning of soul? The meaning of soul, as I um, discovered, the more that I was reading accounts in the black and white press in the late 1960s in particular, um, you know, what I found was not so much an attempt to define soul um, on the part of the, the various writers and musicians um, associated with that concept, so much as a particular logic that I felt was inhering in the way that people talked about soul. So the way that people would talk about it would be to say, Black people have been through a series of kind of historical trials um, and, and have through that actually earned a kind of badge of survivorship that's called soul, right? So whatever else people wanted to say about soul, it was connected to historical and present suffering um, and struggles of Black people as a group. But of course, to have soul was a good thing, right? Nobody wanted to have suffered in this way, but it was a rhetorical um, and kind of almost philosophical way of turning Black disadvantage to spectacular advantage and saying to white America, you might love this music, but you can't actually claim to have soul um, because you simply haven't been through the kinds of things that black people have been through together. And so the utility of this concept um, was really as um, that it allowed black people to organize themselves around this concept of shared collective resilience, you know, and to create a different kind of narrative of what they had come through um, and what it meant to to have come through that together, what it yielded, right, um, in the form of this this beautiful um, kind of sense of survivorship and possibility that was called soul. So it was almost a kind of existential claim um, that that helped rally Black people, um, helped bring them together, and that was manifested. Uh, perhaps most dramatically in the music called Soul, which, as I explain, um, was composed of various techniques through which Black artists perform the sense of resilient survivorship on a national stage. One of the things that I appreciated about the introduction to your book is that you um, have pointed out that the way we remember Soul now is flawed and that part of what you're doing is trying to reclaim what soul really was at the time. Can you talk a little bit about that difference between the historical memory of soul and what you found when you were really wet back and looked at it closely? Sure. I think that there are a few different ways that people have tended to remember soul and, you know, kind of depending on where you're coming from and who you are. Um, but I, I will say that first and foremost, I was sort of taking issue with popular representations of soul that we get in various biopics and even documentaries um, about soul artists. And so one thing that I mentioned um, in the in the book, for example, is the the film Ray about Ray Charles, which I actually really like, um, but which does frame his music as a kind of um, mystical product of childhood trauma, namely the, the loss of his mother. Um, and that's a very common trope. We see this especially in films about soul women, such as Nina Simone, right? Where it's like um, your, your, your own kind of personal biographical suffering leads you to somehow, you know, create this incredible art. Um, and that, that kind of narrative, one thing that it does is it devalues the conscious, deliberate, strategic artistry of these, these soul figures, right? It, it really 
um, devalues the way in which Ray, Char- Ray Charles was practicing, right? But he actually had to like develop, he, people might've been prodigies, you know, and Ray Charles certainly was, as was Nina Simone, as was Aretha, as was Donny Hathaway, as were, you know, several of the people who went on to become, you know, incredible icons of this music. But as we know, you know, prodigious talent without practice really doesn't get you very far. So I wanted to talk about the actual material labor that went into um, creating soul music um, as a kind of counter narrative to some of these more popular, you know, Hollywood and other kinds of productions. I also wanted to spotlight women, Black women, who are often and still written out of, you know, histories of the music, documentaries and so forth. Um, and, you know, from another perspective, finally, I'll just say that there was a, another kind of more academic critical discourse that I was trying to create a counter narrative to, um, that in some ways the, the book is like an explicit polemic against, which is the discourse of post-soul theory. And that's something that arises, um, in the late 2000s, most, uh, or most clearly in the late 2000s as an articulation of this concept, um, that says that the work created by Black artists born after 1963, so in a post soul moment, is more kind of inclusive, radical, and vibrant than that created during the soul era itself. Um, so even though post soul theory doesn't tend to actually uh, define what soul is, it nonetheless implicitly uh, posits soul as a kind of foil. Right. As this, you know, sort of nebulous but nefarious, you know, uh, heterosexist, patriarchal, very limiting kind of formation that later post-soul artists get to um, free themselves from or need to overcome in some way. And so when I saw, you know, this this kind of development of post-soul theory, and I should say that there are some people who talk about post-soul in, in, in much more complicated and interesting ways. But I think that the general tendency has been to draw this line between, on the one hand, work created during Black arts and Black power, um, which, you know, people talk about as the, the soul kind of, um, you know, uh, formation that is very restrictive and it's about, you know, kind of black nationalist solidarity and there's only one particular way to be black and it's, you know, and very limiting and essentialist and all these bad things on the one hand. And then there's there's what happens like in this post-soul moment, right? A post-revolutionary moment where everybody's free to, you know, kind of be themselves and and there's no, you know, thing that you have to do. It's just your work is black because you are in that kind of thing. But I just wanted to say, I think that we see all of that kind of freedom in the soul era itself. But if we don't actually ask again, return to that question of what soul is, then we're not really going to see that. Well, you brought up a lot of uh, rich areas of your book in that answer that I'd like to, to sort of follow up on. So maybe we can start with just what do you think is at stake when a black musician is making music, maybe specifically soul music, but maybe, you know, music in general. Do you mean, um, so any, what is at stake when any well, black so artist- when, when Aretha Franklin, I should make it more specific. That'll make it more a logical question, I guess. When Aretha Franklin goes into the studio to make music in the late sixties, um, with all that's going on, you know, what's at stake for her? What is she needing to respond to? And how are people uh, going to respond to her? Well, by the late 1960s, I mean, Aretha's an interesting case because she had, you know, been performing basically for her entire life. You know, she was the kind of like the the golden child of the very famous Reverend C.L. Franklin, um, minister in, in Detroit, uh, who was a, a quite famous preacher in his own right and kind of, uh, I would say groomed, but certainly nurtured uh, the young Aretha, you know, into the musical profession, you know, and so she she would tour the gospel circuit with people like Mahalia Jackson. And um, she had started recording, you know, quite young and doing jazz albums and different kinds of things and, you know, really trying to to make her name as an artist. And so by the late 1960s, when she finally starts to hit, you know, she signs to Atlantic records, which is a big moment for her. Um, And, you know, as we often see in the gender politics of these representations, her real emergence is often falsely or mistakenly credited to people like Jerry Wexler, you know, who's the head of Atlantic records at the time, like, Oh, so he finally knew what to do with Aretha is the kind of common uh, refrain, but she, she's figuring out what, what to do herself. You know, and one thing that she does is start to play piano, for instance, on her own 
recordings. And that allows her not only to really find um, or you know claim that seat of power um, as a pianist, but to direct the band and to create you know arrangements um, you know around herself and what she's doing. So she's taking control. She's you know been ready to be a star for many years. She tells a reporter in the late 60s that she feels like she's 25 going on 50. You know, she's an old soul. And so so by the late 1960s, she's trying to make her name. Um, you know, she's trying to prove that she can make it kind of um, outside of the, the church. Um, and with this very kind of new uh, form of blues-based R&B that, that she is really kind of innovating um, through her work at Muscle Shoals and um, in general. Just to keep on Aretha for a few more minutes, um, one of the um, real gifts of the book is that you um, have some very precise and interesting um, analyses of a lot of different performances throughout the book. And one of them that really caught my eye was your analysis of um, Amazing Grace, um, uh, on her, her cover of Amazing Grace specifically. And you talked about it as an example of erotic sociality, which I found quite provocative. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how you hear that piece. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so yeah, Aretha, you know, records Amazing Grace um, at, at a church in Watts, Los Angeles, um, in I think it's 1971. And it's sort of a homecoming for her, you know, as somebody who had, uh, you know, been had come up through the church as her original kind of training ground as a singer um, and had kind of quote unquote crossed over into a more kind of pop market, you know, been marketed um, as a soul artist and had been crowned the queen of soul by then. So for her to come back to church was, was really a, an interesting moment. And when she sings Amazing Grace, you know, you can kind of hear her, I hear her bringing all the kind of sexual energy that had informed her more secular musical production, songs like Dr. Feelgood, most obviously. Um, but she's bringing that, you know, back into a gospel um, idiom. And, and in fact, I would say in that way, tapping into the, the sexual ecstatic fervor that people like E. Patrick Johnson tell us is part of Black religious worship in the first place, right? So it's not exactly that she's importing something that wasn't there. She's simply highlighting, I think, the, the very kind of um, sexual dimensions, the erotic uh, sociality that one finds within a lot of uh, Black musical traditions themselves. And so in Amazing Grace in particular, where I hear that is, for example, in the, the slow build. You know, she really kind of takes her time in, in dramatically building the song up to its melodic climax on the word grace, which is, of course, very fitting, right? Because that's the, the climax of, of the song. Um, and, and she kind of takes it back down and she brings it back up. And there are these peaks and valleys, you know, throughout her rendition of the song that I think are creating a kind of... Um, a delay, a suspense that is to me kind of fundamentally erotic. So you're kind of waiting for her to reach the high note that you know she's going to get to, right? She's making you wait for it uh, and making you wait for it to sort of come come back, um, you know, when she's going to sing it again. And the way that she involves everybody in that um, kind of anticipatory erotic energy is what makes it, you know, such a collective experience. So to stay with uh, Aretha and the church for just a little bit longer, um, she is like so many other soul singers really comes out of the church. That's her first musical experience. And you see that in so many different soul musicians as well, but also your idea of what the soul means seems to me to have a lot of resonance with Christian belief as well, since, you know, the idea that suffering is, um, is can be overcome and that there is there can be meaning in the experience of suffering is very um, central to Christian um, theology as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the kind of triangle between the the secular side of the music, um, Christian tradition, and uh, you know musical and theological, and then also the sort of the political moment that soul is being made in, how all of that kind of works together. Sure. So, you know, I guess I should first say soul is itself is clearly a theological concept, right? The idea of having a soul um, is already sort of aligning oneself with uh, with a divine energy or or a force that is greater than oneself. 
Um, and so it has particular resonance in religious contexts. Um, and yet what happens in my mind in the Seoul era is that these very long-standing Judeo-Christian beliefs in the redemptive value of suffering um, become translated into a more secular context. So whereas in Christian tradition, the concept might be that, you know, the, the last shall be first in this, you know, afterlife, right? That your reward for earthly suffering and devotion and faith uh, is achieved in a world beyond this one. What soul, the secularization of soul discourse does in the late 1960s is to say, um, suffering does have value, it does have payoff, but, but that reward is here. Right? It, it's, a, it's an earthly reward, and it comes in the form of a kind of sense of communal belonging to other, particularly with other Black people who have experienced similar um, issues, right? Um, and, and also in the form of a kind of, in, in musical terms, uh, virtuosic uh, performative abilities, right? And so, so one way to understand that, the, the clearest, I think, illustration of that would be to point to somebody like James Brown, who says, you know, who... who literally markets himself as the hardest working man in show business, right? Now, why is it a good thing to be the hardest working man in show business, right? You might say, oh, that's that must be frustrating for you or, you know, how sad that you have to work that hard. But the soul, the, the logic of soul is precisely to say, no, because I work so hard, I am, I become, I become the best, right? It is precisely through hard work, through labor, through struggle and suffering and strain that I have achieved the capacity to perform in a way that outshines anyone else, right? That That is the source of the, the star time, star power that James Brown um, represented. And so, so that's kind of what, that's what soul is about. It's about, it's about that turn. And, and I should say that we hear that turn in Aretha's rendition of Amazing Grace, which for all of its social, sexual energy is also... Um, in my hearing, uh, a call to liberation. It's, it's about collective striving um, toward this home, again, that I, that I hear not only as this, you know, otherworldly kind of home, um, but, but a home right here, you know, perhaps within the music, um, but as representing the possibility of, of a home on earth, you know, that would, or a place that would feel more like a home, you know, for, for black people, you know, in the United States itself. And the reason why I say that is because she changes the lyrics as she sings the song. And she says not only um, that, that grace will lead me home, uh, which is the, you know, the, the lyric of the original, but she sings um, that grace is going to lead me and my people right on home. So, so it's this, this collective endeavor um, and finally, you know, the, the collectivity of it is, is heard in the very structure of the call and response that, that you hear in that performance where she says, I know that same old grace is going to lead me and my people right on. And there's a, there, there, there becomes a kind of a bouncing back and forth between her own right on and that of the choir. They start saying right on, right on. And, and that, I mean, you can almost, it's almost like the, like the musical equivalent of like the, the raised black power fist, right? <laughs> it sounds like they could be giving each other, like we are, we're going to do this thing, you know, together. And so that's a beautiful example of the way that the, the secular and the sacred and the sexual and the social can all coexist together in this extraordinary musical performance. The section that you refer to as part of your answer about John, uh, about Brown and about how he was the hardest working man in in music and so forth. I really uh, loved that section. But one of the things that I thought about was um, as I got to the end of the book and you started talking about more recent music, you talked about Beyonce. And I really think we might uh, put Beyonce in that same sort of category of someone who's so physically virtuosic on stage and is also clearly working really hard. And this came out after your book, but the whole homecoming show and the um, Netflix documentary about that really talks about how much work she's doing, right? As a performer, as a woman getting over pregnancy, as or childbirth, as as a producer and sort of thing. Can you maybe talk a little bit about your view of someone like Beyonce within the paradigm you've constructed in the book? Sure. Um, and I actually, I 
do talk about this uh, at more length, I'll just refer um, listeners who might be interested to an article called Surviving the Hustle, uh, I think the subtitle of which is Beyonce's Performance of Work. Um, but this has been important to her uh, sort of self-fashioning for, for, for many years is to precisely, as you say, underline the hard work that makes possible her her own star power. And I do see her as working, you know, in a tradition of a James Brown, in a tradition of a Nina Simone, a singer who she explicitly references, um, both visually as well as sonically um, on her Lemonade visual album. Um, you know, and, and so I see her as in that way, um, again, resisting the myth of a kind of black female natural genius you know um somebody who just and this is this is a, a myth that has dogged black performers from you know the since slavery right this idea of like the natural the the primitive um person who just you know does everything kind of with exceptional rhythm right um and, and other kinds of musical skill so she's working against that very consciously and saying like no like this does take work it takes craft it takes artistry um, but the argument that I make about her relationship to the soul tradition specifically is to say that Beyonce, I think, kind of um, over the course of her career is a little bit, um, she she changes, I think, the meaning of, of that hard work because the meaning of that hard work itself changes in a neoliberal, sort of post-revolutionary neoliberal context in which, you know, hard work becomes now the site of the kind of um, enterprising individual on his or her hustle who is going to make it, um, you know, based on their own, you know, kind of wherewithal, right? Um, and and if they fail, it's their own fault, right? That 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 is the logic of of neoliberalism that says, like, listen, like if you if you couldn't figure out how to cut it in this in this economy, then then that was your problem. So I, so it, what I'm saying is that that one's focus on one's own hard work. Um, becomes potentially problematic in in that kind of um, discursive structure, and so what I see Beyonce is doing just just quickly is is you know with her 2013 album, which is self titled Beyonce, capital letters. I see her as kind of revising um, that that traditional focus on her own hard work, and you know saying like what what have I sacrificed to to kind of work this you know to or to gain in working so hard to to gain you know the kind of um, capital and and status that I have. And, and musically, as well as visually, she's kind of pulling back from her own perfectionistic star image there. I think she does the same thing on Lemonade, which becomes more and more interested in distributing, I would say, her own star power to other women, for example, in a song like Get Information. Um, so that's those are my um, thoughts about Beyonce in relationship to the, the kind of hard work ethos that Soul, I think, inaugurates. Um. One of the other things that's interesting about the book and sort of circles around to your discussion of Amazing Grace is that it's unusually, at least in my mind, dependent upon covers as um, your uh, many of your main examples. And it's, of course, not that other writers don't talk about covers, but it really struck me you have a whole chapter on covers and there are other covers that you use as examples throughout the book. Why did you find covers to be so... Um, uh, such a productive place for your conversation. Well, the soul cover is is useful because it draws our attention to the artist as performer. Um, it shows that artistry, in other words, resides not only in authorship and in composition, but in the act of performing a song that somebody else has written. So, you know, that in some ways is, is what is at stake in my decision to begin the book with a reading of Gladys Knight and the Pips, I Gotta Use My Imagination. That song was not written by them, um, you know, but but the way that Gladys Knight performed song, you know, song lyrics that were written by somebody else, you know, that is where the the magic of the song happens. Or at least there's a, as much magic there, you know, in the way that she um, puts the lyric over, we might say, in the way that the pips, you know, support her and put put it over themselves. As much magic in that as there was, you know, in the the people who kind of composed and, and wrote the lyrics to the song in the first place. Um, you know, this is something that Zora Neale Hurston teaches us, right, um, in the in the 1920s, you know, where she she talks about um, the fact that that what we really mean by creativity is is an original, and this is a paraphrase, 
Um, it, it's an it's an original making original creative use of familiar materials. She says even Shakespeare didn't like you know develop the whole from whole cloth. You know the the ideas for his plays. He was using traditional stories and telling them in his own way. And that's what black artists have have often done. You know that has been the kind of locus of black creativity is to say, look at what I've made of this thing. Um, that, that pre-existed me, but that would never have taken this shape had I not come along. That's, this is the blues, right? I mean, everybody sings the same blues songs, but how are you going to sing it, right? It's about how you um, insert your own unique voice into this tradition, the same thing with the jazz standard. And so for soul artists, um, you know, that just becomes the, their, their form of not only covering, um, not only singing songs composed by others, as was the case with Gladys Knight and the Pips, um, but covering songs that have been recorded by others and have been big hits, you know, in some cases by uh, other artists, this becomes a way of them, you know, really asserting their own signature voices and, you know, saying like, you can hear who I am precisely because you can compare what I'm doing to what, you know, in say in Aretha's, you know, in the case of Aretha's cover perspective, you can compare what I'm doing to what Otis Redding did, um, you know, with Donny Hathaway. You can compare what I'm doing with a beautiful song, like A Song For You, to what Leon Russell did. Um, and and so, you know, I talk about covers as, again, just a way of artists sort of announcing their own signature voices. Um, and in some ways, that is a competitive gesture. You know, it's about outdoing the original. Um, and I think that there's an interesting racial politics to that, especially if the original, you know, has been a hit um, by white, you know, with or um, through the you know recordings of white artists, um, and then sometimes I also want to say it's not necessarily you know an agonistic struggle for for power. Sometimes you're you're covering a song because you love the song. Um, there's a group called Rotary Connection, uh, which Minnie Riperton, uh, one of my artists in the in the book, and who's graces the cover of the book, uh, she sings with the band Rotary Connection, and they they did a beautiful like very interesting sensual cover of Respect the years after Aretha Franklin had actually kind of made the song her own. And I asked the one of the members of the band um, why they did that. You know, this uh, Sydney Barnes, who's one of my key interview subjects. And and I was kind of like, were you, I don't know, like, how did you feel about doing, doing the song? How did Minnie feel about singing a song that was by then so thoroughly associated with Aretha? And he was just like, it was a great song. We love the song. We figured it's so good. Like there's no way we can mess it up. <laughs> so it's about sort of teasing out all the different relationships uh, that black artists have to pre-existing material and, and just showing all the different ways that they, they take it up and, and use it to create their own sound. Yeah, that cover of Respect is very interesting. I, I did some listening as I was reading this book and it's so different it's almost unrecognizable if what your sonic um i don't know baseline for respect is aretha franklin's cover um it riverton's version or uh doesn't sound anything like it really um so that's interesting that they were like well we can't mess it up so we might as well do something cool with it (laughs) you know it's fascinating can you maybe you have so many interesting um analyses in here but and we certainly don't have time to go through all of them but can you maybe think of one that you think is particularly emblematic or one that you would like to talk about just to give our listeners a taste of the kind of information that you're interested in when you do a close reading of a cover sure yeah so one of the covers that i talk about is nina simone's cover of the song life which was a song drawn from the musical hair um, and you know, when, when she sings that song, so first of all, it's kind of interesting that she chooses to, to cover that song. Um, you know, we don't necessarily associate what one might not necessarily associate the Nina Simone of songs like Mississippi Goddamn and four women with, you know, a Broadway show tune. Um, but it, it, in a sense, just displays her kind of um, very uh, wide-ranging kind of musical imagination and, and musical taste, you know, that she would take this song that might not sound like a Nina Simone song um, and take it up into her own voice. Um, one thing that she does as she performs the song is, and, and I guess in tribute to the the sort of multi-textured, no pun intended, roots of, of hair itself, which was as a rock musical, right, is already a kind of hybrid form Nina Simone takes it and she brings her own very uh, syncretic, you know, variegated musical sensibility to her performance of the song. So it's sort of in keeping in that way with the with the song and the musical from which it is drawn itself. But she, you know, she plays it, um, you know, uh, 
I, I'm interested in this in particular. The, the version that I talk about is is from uh, I think it's 1968 uh, live live concert. So she's at the piano and, and she's playing it. And you know, at a certain point, she kind of you know does this this fill on the piano that, that really shows off the, her classical training, her training in classical music, um, which she studied throughout you know, the first part of her life and continued to integrate into her soul and other kinds of musical productions throughout her career. Um, she has these kind of bluesy ad-libs that she does, you know, um, she she says, oh Lord, why am I alive anyway, you know, at some point. Uh, because, because the song is about, I, I should have said, having nothing but life, right? This is this is a song people probably know. I got no, you know, money, I got no shoes, I got no, basically like, I have all that I have. What have I got? Why am I alive anyway? What have I got that nobody can take away? And then it's, you know, I've got my body, right? Right, and she goes through kind of catalogs um, all the different parts of of her body that that she still does have, um, and then concludes by saying, you know, the, the chorus of the song is, "And I've got life," right? Um, and so, you know, but but she tosses off these these little moments that that seem like they're from the gospel tradition, from the from the uh, classical tradition, from the blues, and in that way is really, um, you know, showing that not only is is the life that she's laying claim to, you know, one of great richness, but also the musical traditions, you know, that she's bringing to her performance of the song are themselves, you know, full full of life, full of richness, and full of um, diversity and and variety. And you know, finally, this is it means something for a black woman you know to sing this song of uh, a song of oneself you know as Whitman might have might have put it right and to reclaim specifically every single part of her body sexual and otherwise you know to say what whatever you might have tried to take away you you couldn't take this right this reclamation of the black female body as a source of uh sensual pride you know is is very important and is very much a soul gesture um, and, and finally, you know, when we think about this coming out in the late 1960s and how many black people we have seen uh, murdered and maimed, you know, and, and assaulted for, for trying to exercise and, and fight for civil rights, to say I have life, right, is, is actually a kind of, um, it's almost a taunt, you know, it's almost a, a statement of victory against those who would try to take that life away. So there's, there's many different kinds of meanings that I see Nina Simone bring to her cover of that song. And those meanings are musical and they're cultural and historical as well. The way that you talk about soul music, I think is really interesting because you don't always talk about the big picture. You don't talk about the, say, the big swoop of orchestration or the beauty of Aretha Franklin's uh, piano playing or and the way that she approaches her arrangements and things like that, you often will focus on very small moments in the music. Um, so you have a chapter, for instance, about when singers go up into falsetto or you're ta- you talk about just small moments of ad-libbing. So what does giving um, your analysis over to so many of these very tiny moments in the music. How is that helpful for you in the way that you see soul music? Yeah, thank you for that question. That's something that's so important to my approach to soul um, is is exactly that to to kind of really listen in detail, um, as Alexandra Vasquez puts it in her masterful study of Cuban music, which is called listening in detail. Um, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to listen in detail, and that is sort of working against a couple of um, different impulses. You know, one is is to focus, as you said, on um, the, the lyrical content of songs. And that's how soul has often been read is as simply a vehicle of black power and black uh, civil rights messaging, right? So, you know, you can you can see that in you know, the um, discussion of Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come, for instance. Um, Nina Simone's Young, Gifted and Black. James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. I mean, those songs are, are obviously important message songs and they're, they're beautiful songs and they were very important to people in the movement and beyond. Um, but if we think about soul as only being about those kind of lyrical message songs or protest songs, then we're going to miss a lot of other, uh, what I would consider to be, you know, just as resonant soul moments um, that are happening more at the level of the of form and more at the level of performance so that whether or not a song is explicitly about say it loud i'm black and i'm proud um even if it's i've got to use my imagination you know um even if it's i've got life it's still sort of doing very important um sociocultural and musical work uh so that was one thing that i wanted to to point out um you know another thing about listening um to the details uh is it, it works against you know Again, you know, I'm thinking here um, about the 
there's something that the poet and critic Nathaniel Mackey writes uh, about African-American literature. And he, he's saying, you know, he says, um, it, there's too often a tendency to read works by black writers for what they can tell us about the quote unquote black experience. Whereas one reads works by white writers for things like formal innovation, you know, um, poetic expression and these more kinds of artistic concerns. Um, and so in, in working against the tradition of reading the myth or privileging the message song, I'm thinking of that and I'm thinking of how much more uh, credit might we give these artists as artists if we think about what they're doing um, to beneath the level of, you know, what, what is the message that they are kind of promulgating and promoting. And then finally, the, the reason for focusing on the detail is to try to kind of, as I, as I put it in the introduction, to kind of draw soul a little bit closer, right? Because soul has often been seen as this kind of um, mystical or distant or vague and nebulous kind of concept, right? Like, what even is it? And this is a que- this was a question for people in the soul era, and it's a question today. But I think if we think about things like like James Brown's grunts and you know Minnie Riperton's move into the falsetto and the way that Nina Simone manages this incredible moment in the the life. Uh, performance that I mentioned, you know, where her, she thinks her microphone is off and she starts singing, the, the mic is off, the mic is off. Um, and then it turns out that it's on. And so, you know, she kind of recovers from that moment and, and you know, uses it to create a call and response with the audience in, in so doing, you know, uh, shows us, you know, what, what that kind of, um, what it means to, to turn deprivation into, um, you know, a, a realization of actual abundance, right? And, and according to the soul logic that I'm describing, if we look at moments like that, um, you know, these little details, I think that we can see a lot more about what uh, more of what made soul so special. And we can, again, start to almost personalize uh, a concept that has long been rendered rather impersonal, distant and even problematic. I really appreciated what you're saying about treating these musicians as artists because so often they are not or they are not treated as whole artists. Aretha Franklin is a great example of that where she's just a singer, but actually she does so much more, right, than sing, as you pointed out in one of uh, in your discussion earlier in the podcast. But there is always a tension, I think, for people who are studying music, really all kinds of music. between the artistic value of the music and the the musicians and composers and producers and so forth as artists, but also understanding this music is a commercial enterprise and that there are commercial interests as well. That tension can be very difficult to um, to navigate and to account for both sides of that in soul or in any other kind of music. Can you talk a little bit about how you dealt with that tension between the artistic side of soul and the fact that it still is a commercial type of music? Sure. I think that that has been a problem that has plagued soul um, studies as you know, as it has perhaps plagued other forms, you know, and it's a, it is a longstanding issue, as you say, you know, um, can a blues artist be quote unquote authentic if they're actually concerned with making money? You know, do they really have to be like sitting on a front porch somewhere in the deep South, like just strumming on an old guitar <laughs> as the myth of the, you know, Southern Delta blues man might have it. Um, but, you know, as people like actually my colleague Houston Baker have pointed out, you know, that there's, there's really no contradiction between like being a blues singer and wanting to make money um, from, you know, honing this craft. And in fact, it, in some cases it was precisely um, the, the concept of authenticity that people were, were using and trading on, trading in, in order to market themselves, you know, in order to make more money. In other words, saying like, I'm the real deal. Like I am so authentic. Um, and, and in, you know, so styling themselves, you know, the, the idea was that, that they were the ones who should be, um, whose records you should buy, you know, and who should, you know, get the gig and get the money. And so that, you know, I think my soul artists are are kind of dealing with a, a similar kind of set of expectations as well, um, and they're navigating them in similar ways. So, you know, I think that soul has in some ways been framed as uh, this kind of anti-commercial space, you know, that it's sort of all about um, this. Uh, it, there's a critic, Paul Gilroy, who, who explicitly says, you know, it's... Uh, about the sort of anti-capitalist thrust, um, you know, he talks about the anti-capitalist thrust of the music. And I think that that in some ways might be there, you know, on a kind of philosophical level, you know, striving for something better that really has nothing to do with your place within the kind of uh, American capitalist system. Um, but I mean, in musical terms, in actual mu- material musical terms, 
uh, people did want to get paid. You know, they, they wanted they wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to get rich. Um, and that, I think, was not really a problem for, for the artists themselves, you know. Um, I think that the my black artists, you know, the black artists in the study would be accused of selling out if they, uh, you know, hired too many white people, you know, to kind of manage their careers or if it seemed like they were selling out in terms of uh, the music that they started to record. Um, They're playing, you know, kind of uh, segregated venues. Um, you know, if they if they were making certain, you know, uh, decisions with their careers that seemed not to support uh, Black people, um, then I think they could be con- sort of accused of, of selling out. But but just the fact of making money uh, was not something that people were generally upset about. So, for example, you know, when you see pe- these artists being covered in the Black press, people people are excited that, to list like all the cars that James Brown has, you know, the, how big his house is and, you know, all the, whatever, the fur coat that, that people have, Isaac Hayes and his fur-lined, you know, Cadillac. Like, th- this is actually good in part because there's an expectation that Black artists are going to funnel the, the money that they make back into their communities and that they're going to hire Black managers and Black promoters and, you know, that, that they're going to kind of do things um quote unquote, for the people, which was, which in fact they did, you know, and a lot of my artists were like very conscious about being social activists. Um, Isaac Hayes is a good example of that. Aretha Franklin and the work that she did, you know, for Martin Luther King and other figures is a good example of that. Donny Hathaway is another good example of that. Nina Simone, you know, um, who recorded, you know, some songs that, that SNCC, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, took as anthems of their organization, it's a great example of that. So there really wasn't a contradiction uh, for them, I don't think, uh, between being great artists, uh, being recognized and compensated accordingly for their artistry and their labor, and being political activists. So I could talk about this all day long, but I feel like we need to start wrapping up. And I, I feel like it would be remiss not to at least have one question that talks about Black Lives Matter, because um, you do end the book by talking about more recent artists. And um, since you finished the book, of course, um, this civil rights um, activism of Black Lives Matter has only just become more and more visible. Uh, we certainly have had a summer and fall of, in some cities, daily um, uh, protests um, because of in support of Black Lives Matter, and and also some very serious violent repercussions as well. That does remind me quite a bit of some of the um, same kinds of cultural, social, and political tensions that were happening um, in the late '60s and early '70s when um, um, when Soul was born. So what do you see as the soul logic of Black Lives Matter and the age in which we live today? Well, I think that Black Lives Matter sort of shows that the political energies associated with Soul never actually died. They might have been suppressed in the post-revolutionary backlash, you know, kinds of moments um, that produced the, the neoliberal situation that I was describing earlier, this kind of each one for himself you know, um, the real dismantling of, of public programs um, and, you know, the dismantling of the welfare state, that, that all of these things do work to try to suppress the energy and the revolutionary possibility that Seoul sounded and Seoul represented, um, but that those things never actually go away. You know, um, I think about something that Angela Davis says, which is, you know, freedom is a constant struggle. And it's not like you just achieve it, right? And then it's, you're done. <laughs> it's not like civil rights movement. I mean, and this is, a, a, again, a way that I think the book um, tries to refute some some popular discourse or, you know, the way that, that civil rights and Black power themselves have been um, memorialized in the national imaginary as these moments where, particularly with civil rights, you know, Martin Luther King had a dream. That dream was realized through legislation such as the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and now everything is fine. And anybody who complains about things not being okay is actually just part of the problem because they are failing to uh, properly get over, right? Um, you know, this this historical trauma that that is is now sort of over and done with, right? That that, that is that is a story that people tell um, that is very convenient uh, for some. 
But, you know, these, these things are not kind of over and done with, you know, they, they stay with us, um, that there's work that, that does need to be done. And that that constant struggle continues. And so I think that in that way, soul itself, and that the logic of collective striving, and the need to believe that there is something better on the other side, not only for you, but for people like you, that continues. And I think that, you know, that's what we're seeing in the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement now. Well, as we, I, I wish we could keep talking about this, but um, I hope that this interview gives people an idea of what your book is about and um, the various issues that you explore in it. And um, before we go, I'd love to know, what are you working on now? Well, thank you for asking. Um, one thing that I'm working on is actually an editorial project. I am co-editor with Joshua Clover, who is a professor and music critic um, at UC Davis, but we're, we've begun a series of books called the single series. Um, it's a little bit like the 33 and a third series, um, which is, you know, these short books on uh, particular albums, except that our series, a single series, as its name suggests, is a series of books, um, each of which is devoted to one particular single. So one particular song um, that has, you know, resonance across time, um, and we have books forthcoming on uh, Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child, as well as actually on Beyonce's Formation. Um, we have a book that's gonna somebody's writing about Old Town Road, uh, and so I'm excited just to kind of usher some of those works into the world. Um, for myself, I've been um, working a little bit more in in journalism uh, recently and working on some profiles of artists and doing some some interviews with them. And one reason why. I, mentioned that, although I can't say too much about those projects at the moment. Uh, I mention it because I think that the interview is such a, a useful, uh, vital art form, actually, um, in that, you know, the questions that you ask, I'm sure you know this as, as an interviewer yourself, the questions that you ask somebody make all the difference in terms of the narrative that you're able to sort of draw out um, from them and, and construct around them. And something that I said in my my first book, Black Resonance, you know, which was looking at these classic women singers, I mentioned, you know, Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, and so on. Uh, there was a moment in the book where I, I said, you know, we know very little about their their processes, these women's processes of, of training and development um, and honing their skills across time, in part because people didn't ask them about that. You know, they asked them about a lot of other things, you know, Billie Holiday's uh, drug use and, you know, who were, who was she dating, right? Um, but but the press is, has very, very rarely been interested in the, uh, the details of, you know, these women's uh, artistic lives. And I think that that we still see that, you know, in, in some music writing today, you know, uh, in which the story of, you know, what was your childhood like or what happened with that guy you were dating often overshadows the question of like, what were you thinking when you made this album? Right. And so those are the questions that I've been wanting to ask artists for years and um, I'm getting to do in some of my recent work. So that's what I'm up to currently. Well, that actually is very exciting because I do think that music journalism can be quite wonderful, but often it is very sexist, very reductive, very frustrating, and I'm excited to hear that you are going to be out there trying to correct some of those problems. So that's, that's, that's really great to hear. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Kristen Turner. This is New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network, and I've been talking to Emily J. Lordy author of The Meaning of Soul, Black Music and Resilience since the 1960s.